Hello, and welcome back to the Cap Tech Trends podcast. Back by popular demand, we have Callie. Uh, one of the best parts of my job is when I get to work with people who are really passionate about what they do, both for a living, but then side projects, and people who are very intelligent and people who have knowledge and domain expertise that I don't have that I can learn from. And Callie is a great example of all three of those things. And as I said, we had a lot of requests for her to come back on the show. So welcome, Callie. Thanks. Great to be back, Vinny. Yeah. So we've had a couple podcasts recently speaking about data, advanced analytics, machine learning, AI, getting on the, I guess, more of the consumption side of data. And we've said several times over and over again how important good data is. And we talk about the five Vs. So velocity, volume, veracity, variety, value. There's other Vs right? But those are, those are some of the Vs. So what I wanted to talk to you about today is getting a little bit closer to pragmatic approaches to improving the quality of your data so that you can do the advanced analytics, machine learning, and AI and such. So starting there, I know you've been on some projects recently with some technologies that you're passionate about. Why don't you uh, start with uh, the metadata-driven ingestion? Yeah. So um, something that I love about metadata-driven ingestion is that it's very easy for users to get their data in. So Basically, what we do with metadata-driven ingestion is instead of a user saying, hey, I have this new file, I need it into the data lake or the data warehouse or what have you, they're able to securely and with governance approval and everything like that, be able to push that data up into the lake and be able to use it for their analytics. So it's a really fantastic way to be able to get that volume or the velocity of the data and in more variety. Quickly. I would say more people doing more. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about that a bit because I like to get specific on so people can know like actually what it is, not just generally conceptually what it is. So what we're talking about is power users, I guess, business users. Usually, your your power users, your your analytics groups that that really kind of already have their shadow IT, whether you realize it or not, that are doing things that they have to do to be able to get those reports out. A lot of times these are reports that are going to C-suites and stuff like that, and they're just pulling data from the internet and pushing it from their local machine and using that to do these reports to push them out to you. Right. So I'm thinking of people who would normally have, what, spreadsheets, mm-hmm. um, some unstructured data, maybe some structured data that they're using in some operational systems, and having a trusted method by which that can be ingested into a data lake. Is that, do, I, do I understand that correctly? Yeah, absolutely. I think the first time I built this, that I worked with a client on something like this, we had Zillow data, for instance, that we mm-hmm. were pulling in. We also had, this was a large utility provider, we had smart meter data that was JSON-based, so it didn't fit in the data warehouse, but we were able to put it into a data lake. And as it changed, they were able to keep updating it themselves. They didn't have to get IT involved, but they could still do it in a self-governing kind of way. So what were some of the pains of the past then? People were doing this anyway, and they didn't have this metadata-driven approach. So what did that lead to? Was it was it poor data, a data swamp as opposed to a data lake? Did it then require post-processing to repair it? Like, What were some of the Why did this come about? Yeah, absolutely. The data swamp is a big one. Another thing that really happened was being able to audit a lot of this stuff. They couldn't do it. So for reports that are just general guidelines and stuff like that, that's great. But when you're making, I think of our financial clients, when you're making financial decisions and approving, rejecting people based off of data that's sitting on my machine that at any time could crash and burn and then I can't get it back. We need to be able to audit those types of things. Right. So it's audit, but it's also rules-based yes. on, on upfront, right? Okay. So it kind of takes the shadow out of shadow IT. It does. Right. So instead of just asking people to stop doing what they're doing, you're allowing them to do it in a more, um, what's the word, governed, I hate to use that word, but more responsible yeah. 
way. Absolutely. Yeah. What does that look like? So for me, as a more of a programmer background, less of a data background, I'm thinking, well, isn't this just a list of metadata tags and a rules-based engine? You're not that far off. Um, a lot of times I see it where they'll take a tool like Calibra, which is a governance tool that has its own backend with all the metadata built in, and marry that with an ETL tool, depending on what you've got. There's a ton of them. A lot of them are homegrown as well. But be able to automatically read that metadata that's coming in and apply your rules, check to make sure basics, an integer is an integer, a string is a string, there's no funky non-ASCII characters in there if there's mm -hmm. not supposed to be, that sort of thing. It reminds me back in the day of EDI, electronic data interchange, when all these companies would send data sets back and forth. And there was always rules-based engines to check for format. Mm -hmm. Not just whether it's an integer or whatever, but also range, you know, value range checking. And that then turned into more abstracted rules-based engines. So I guess my question there is not just showing how old I am, but um, is this a visual interface? Are people going in and looking at metadata tags and applying edit checks in a visual way, or is this all scripted? I've seen it both ways. The visual UI is obviously much better for your power users that aren't scripters or maybe you want to control the scripting and that sort of thing. We actually have an open source tool that works with Hadoop here at CapTech called Alfred. That Didn't is, you create Alfred? I did create okay. Alfred. <laughs> Self plug. Shameless plug, plug. yeah. <laughs> Works great with HDFS. I'm actually working on it this year to get it to work with AWS um, and be able to work in a data lake that way. But the UI to it allows the end users to put in exactly what they need and the reasonableness checks and everything like that. Is there a website people can go to to pull that down? It's on GitHub. It's on the CapTech GitHub. Okay. Under Alfred. Under Alfred. Got it. Want to tell us why it's called Alfred? I am a huge Batman nerd. Mm -hmm. And um, Ben Harden actually came up with, oh, it's like a data butler. And that was the tagline. And so for those of you who aren't Batman nerds, Alfred is Batman's butler. Gotcha. Makes sense. Does this introduce other problems? So what I'm thinking of is, gosh, great. So now we are giving power users and maybe some business users who aren't quite as powerful or as knowledgeable in this, sort of the freedom to import as much data as they want. So do we end up getting more types of, does the variety and the volume start to exceed you know, a good intent? Make sense? It does. You could. You could very easily end up with duplicates. Um, you get somebody that's putting the same stuff in there. I think that's really where it comes down to at the end of the day. Data governance is people over process. You've really got to make sure that the people are keeping track of these things and looking into it. And you can absolutely build in a ton of checks into these sorts of things where tasks can go back and forth between people to make sure that what's there. So that sounds like workflow. It does sound like workflow. Okay. So is that part of these tools, or is that still largely a human process? I usually see it largely as a human process, but that doesn't mean we can't build it in. We can't put workflow processes in to mm -hmm. work with that. Where does the metadata come from? Do I have to go in there and def like create a canonical model of my entire organization and then apply it to these data sources? Is it derived from the data sources themselves? Is it How is it is it stored separately so there could be synchronization problems between what we have, what we think is metadata and what's really in the data sources? The more sophisticated tools I've seen is doing an extraction on the data themselves. So like you'd upload a CSV or a JSON file, something like that, and it would be able to interpret that based off of that. And then as you upload the data, it's checking against that metadata. So if the data changes, it can keep up with it and be able to report back and kick back an error and those sorts of gotcha. things. Gotcha, so there's a feedback loop. Where my head goes right away is like, is it inferring what the metadata is based on the values in the fields, 
or is mm-hmm. it more? Okay, so you better be checking a lot of rows because you, you could have data that appears to be one type of data, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, if you're uploading a, a sample file, for example, you'd want to make sure that that sample file has everything that's available, which is going to be difficult sometimes. And there are times that there are errors and those sorts of things. Gotcha. Makes sense. Um, are there tools for this? Are there vendors for this? I mean, Alfred, obviously, is something that you created because I imagine you saw a gap in the market and needed a tool for it. Are there vendors that lead in the space or is it still largely custom? It's largely custom. The other one I've seen is Kylo, which I believe is open sourced by IBM. I should double check that, but I'm almost positive it's IBM, which also works on an HDFS cluster, but it's very similar, has a beautiful front end, has the data governance built into it and has ETL built into it for CSV, JSON, various other separated value type things, anything like that. Gotcha. From a business standpoint, why do I care? I mean, I get the technical stuff. It makes technical people's job easier. From a business perspective, is it just getting, I would imagine, you can correct me, it's creating that foundation so that I can do the advanced analytics, machine learning, and AI much more quickly and much more reliably. Is that, it, It's kind of a quality of data. Absolutely, yeah. So from a business perspective, you think you really don't want bad quality data. You don't want data that you don't know where it came from. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's a huge thing that I see in a lot of analytics groups that they're using data that they don't know where it came. Maybe one person knows where it came from, but generally it's it's not really used well. So it comes back to that auditing and everything like that. Right. Yeah. It reminds me of like, having owned a pool in the past. It's far harder to clean the pool <laughs> once it's a mess, right, versus just controlling everything up front. So I get that. Do you see more people getting into this advanced analytics space than realizing this is a problem and addressing it? Or do you see more people getting into this space knowing it's going to be important and doing it ahead of time? The former. Um, I definitely see a lot of people not realizing what advanced analytics entails, not realizing what the users are going to need. The scariest part of advanced analytics is that your users aren't governed by your same software processes, but they are building software. So a lot of times your advanced analytics, your data scientists, those folks are on the business side of the house, but are building software. So they don't have a lot of the same governance processes and that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. So how do you keep them from making the mistakes that we have tools in place on the engineering side of things without slowing them down. It reminds me like of the maturity of application development. We we got to the point where DevOps became obvious and, and mature, you know, CI, CD, automated builds, automated testing, all that kind of stuff. And data seemed to trail that a bit in terms of the maturity side. And maybe maybe that's true because it was less productionalized and that's that also was changing, right? So is there a is there a fun word like DevOps that applies to this style? Is it an extension of MLOps? It is an extension of MLOps. We use data ops just to kind of envelop MLOps and the DevOps side of things and that apply to data. Gotcha. So switch gears a little bit, because there's other tools involved like Python and R, and I, I hear people talking about using those to, to participate in these types of processes too. Are those the two right tools to talk about? Are there others? And if they are, where do you see them being used appropriately and where do you see them kind of being used in a stretch where you where maybe they shouldn't be? So Python and R are the two most common languages being used on data in the advanced analytics space. I see Python being more used in the enterprise space than I do R. I see R used more in academia. That's not to say that R isn't used in the enterprise space. I will uh, I will refrain from venting too much, but uh, <laughs> um, R is definitely 
not a language that is a first-class language as far as the cloud and a lot of support. It definitely comes as an afterthought. It's very difficult to productionize. A lot of the tools are written from an academic standpoint, which is a lot of times not sufficient for the enterprise. Okay, so then why aren't there just more Python libraries to simulate or emulate those functions? There are. Um, a lot of times R is just faster and better at it. Um, so it comes down to how, how it was built. Right, exactly. Right. Help me understand, again, on a very specific level. I know why I would want to use Python. I've dabbled in it. What's the problem I'm trying to solve that makes me say, oh, okay, gosh, I need to go use R now? A lot of advanced statistical analysis. Um, so things I wouldn't be able to do anyway. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, a lot of the stuff that, I mean, I can't do it either. That's that's what we have data scientists for. That's why they get paid the big bucks. Gotcha. So I don't have to, I don't have to worry about that no. in my professional career. Gotcha. Yeah, so the last thing I can think of that I wanted to ask you is how do people get started in this? So either, actually that question before, is it a reaction to realizing that their lake is becoming a swamp or they do it proactively? In either case, what are the first couple of things you do? What do you tell a, a team in, in terms of people, process, technology? What cloud vendor do you go to? What do you download first? What problems do you undertake first? Do you try to go broad and shallow or narrow and deep? Like what's, give me some rubber meets the road first 30 days kind of thing. First thing you do is figure out what you already have. I think that's the biggest thing that a lot of companies, maybe they know what's in their data warehouse, maybe they know what's in their operational data stores, but there are pockets of data everywhere. There are data silos that they probably aren't even aware of. That's probably a never-ending task. It's probably a never-ending task. Finding the things that are important, um, taking those, you, you, can't, you can't qualify everything. Um, you, like you said, it's a never-ending Well, new task. data comes in all the time. Right. right. Yeah. Finding the things that are in the important processes. So maybe even taking a step back and identifying what are those important processes. What are your analysts reporting on and what are they using? What gets sent to your CEO on a weekly basis? I work with a large healthcare provider, and right now they have a COVID thing that runs monthly up to their CIO. And some of the data they're using um, is stored on someone's laptop. And the first thing we said is that needs to change. Right. We can't have that just sitting on someone's laptop that could crash at any time. Right. So identify the data. I imagine there's a whole sort of information archaeology going around to getting all the different business rules that need to be applied for the edit checks and the ingestion and the range values. I mean, is that more of a discussion with the business or is that a discussion more with the DBAs or, or both? I think it's both. I think your DBAs are going to give you your technical pieces. They're going to be able to give you, that's definitely a number that shouldn't exceed mm -hmm. 18 characters, what have you. Your business users are going to be able to give you your reasonableness checks. If you have score values coming out, maybe your score will never be bigger than one um, right. type of thing. Sort of random question. I've done some API work and modeling similar to what you're talking about, where an organization grew by uh, acquisition. So what they considered a product number was different than what another person that they acquired considered. And the, the rules were different. Some were alphanumeric and some were not. You know, some of the lengths were different. So there wasn't a single product number in the organization. There were many, and they hadn't normalized that yet. So I'm thinking about the metadata implications of that. Are there ways to normalize that and create a single model, or are you dealing with those exceptions kind of the same way I had to with the API and just write a lot of encapsulation software around it? A lot of times it is a lot of encapsulation. It's a lot of trying to figure that out. You can normalize it. You can create a lookup table that would have your old product IDs and have your new product mm -hmm. IDs type of thing. You can also just at some point 
Honestly, you still need the lookup table. I was going to say eventually just change them over, but you're always going to have that historical data somewhere. Right. Hopefully over time that'll age out, but it's going to be a decade. Right. In a data warehouse, you'll probably have product number and old product number sitting side by side in the, uh, the data warehouse. Gotcha. So two more things. Let's talk about tools and people. So first 30 days, what are you downloading? Of course, Alfred. But what else, are you, <laughs> what else are you downloading and looking at from a software or a platform perspective? I'm looking at things like Calibra and other data governance tools. I think that's absolutely where you start. You want to get the governance in place more so than you want to get the ETL in place because you probably already have the ETL built in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. And then being able to marry that to your existing ETL processes in a way that's abstracted, which is always the most difficult part of this. How do you build an ETL process that can take a file and load it successfully. Right. So last question on the people side then, are there additional roles you have to hire for for this or is it within the skill set of existing data scientists or data engineers or even programmers? Like where who has the skill set that this is an easy lift for? To build this, you're going to need data engineers and programmers. I think you can use your existing teams. A lot of times that's sufficient. The big thing is data governance. I could talk for probably a half hour on just data governance, as boring as it is. But having people that are not just your data consumers, but your data producers who are responsible, your data stewards, responsible for that data and those rules and everything that goes with it. A lot of times that is somebody's job on top of their regular job. But when you're really getting serious about keeping your data lake from becoming a data swamp or getting this new data into a data warehouse or what have you, it really needs to be someone's full-time job. Kind of an aside question, and I want to get back to that last thing on the people one, on the um, full-time job. But we talked about Python being a very common language here. If someone's a heavy Java shop or heavy .NET shop, are there equally good tools in those realms? Or are we saying, no, in, in addition to being to knowing either .NET or Java, it's going to be good to know Python for these purposes and learn it. Your analytics space, I think it's really Python is the language. .NET mm-hmm. just doesn't have, or Java just doesn't have the same analytical tooling and that sort of things built in. They're just not designed for that. Gotcha. So, so the question on the people that I wanted to get to, is there, I'm thinking that, yes, we talked about what it takes to understand and build this process. Is there a person on the sort of li- business liaison side that is making sure the organization knows what data they have, the value of that data, the analytics, sort of a person of that, that, ha, that is a single point that you can go to and say, is our data clean? Do we have enough of it? What are we getting out of it? Is that person involved in this yeah, process? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, that, that's going to be somebody in your data governance side of things. Hopefully you have a data governance shop and you've got probably one person that's usually a data steward. One of the more clever names I've seen for them, somebody called them a data angel. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, well, that um, leaves space for data demons then too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, those, are, those are your data consumers. <laughs> data <laughs> right. producers. Well, good. Uh, that answers my questions. Uh, great topic. Again, I wanted to get closer to the rubber hitting the road because we can talk about advanced analytics all day long. If we, if we don't talk about data engineering, then it, it just becomes kind of a futurist discussion and not really a pragmatic Absolutely. discussion. So great. Thanks again for joining. I'm sure we'll have you back on soon. Look forward to that. Sounds great. Thanks, Vinny.
The entire contents and design of this podcast are the property of CapTech or used by CapTech with permission and are protected under U.S. and international copyright and trademark laws. Users of this podcast may save and use information contained in it only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use of this podcast may be made without CapTech's prior written permission. CapTech makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in it are for general information only, and any reliance on the information provided in it is done at your own risk. CapTech makes no warranty that this podcast or the server that makes it available is free of viruses, worms, or other elements or codes that manifest contaminating or destructive properties. CapTech expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, or any other damages arising out of any use of or reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or the information presented in it.